for today, if you'll open your Bibles to 2 Samuel, and we're going to wrap up the life of David and consider some of the final things that happened with David in his life. We have seen uh, David work all the way up to the pinnacle in life, that uh, things were going really well as king over Israel, finally having his reign established, ruling in righteousness and justice. And last week we saw in chapters 11 and 12 the great fall of David uh, as he commits adultery with Bathsheba and he compounds those sins through deception and lies and also through the murder of Uriah the Hittite. And so you have that scene set. And if you remember what we saw last week, there were the great consequences that were going to come from David's sin. Well, the ones that we remember the most was the child was going to die. But one of the other important consequences given is that the sword was not going to depart the house of David. And we are going to see the fruit of those consequences borne out uh, in these chapters. And where we pick up with David now as we're wrapping up the end of his life is we read about David probably walking down one of the most long miserable roads uh, that he's ever walked down. Uh, We have seen him endure great tribulation and difficulty. We've seen him living in a cave uh, on the run from from his enemies. Uh, We we have seen him be uh, basically turned aside by Abigail's husband Nabal after working hard and protecting sheep and protecting farms. But we've seen David go through the highs and lows in life. And I would wonder if we asked David if this wasn't the, one of the, the greatest lows that, that he had to endure. Where we, we read in the Scriptures, David was climbing the slope of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he ascended. His head was covered, and he was walking barefoot. Each of the people with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they ascended. An interesting picture. Here's David leaving Jerusalem. And you can imagine his head head down. I, I don't imagine he was walking very fast. Barefoot, head covered, great imagery of great misery, suffering, and pain. And everybody around him is doing the exact same thing with their heads covered, weeping as they leave Jerusalem and go up the Mount of Olives. Where is he going and why is he leaving? Why is, why is David having to leave Jerusalem? What is he weeping about? Well, what, what, why is everybody around him weeping? You would think maybe there was a great famine in the land. Maybe they'd lost a, a great military battle and that was the cause for all the pain and suffering in David's life. And the reason for the pain and suffering that we're going to look at in the story this morning was from David's family. The sword not departing his house. The consequence of his sin with Bathsheba. We're going to see family problems. Family pain. That is going to bring David to this point in his life as he is weeping as he walks out of Jerusalem. To understand how we get here in the story, we need to back up a little bit and see what's going on. And the first incident that we read about is in 2 Samuel chapter 13. And in 2 Samuel 13, we read about a couple of David's sons. We read about one of his sons is named Amnon. Uh, David had a number of wives, and it seems to be kind of indicated, though not explicitly stated, this was kind of a cause of problems between some of the children. And what we read about here is that Amnon was uh, very lustful toward his half-sister Tamar, rather than 
go and just get married to her, as, as Tamar even indicates. His desire is so great that Amnon decides to rape Tamar. To make matters worse, the law required that what Amnon was supposed to do was to pay a financial penalty and then was to marry Tamar and never divorce her the rest of her life because this was a dishonor and a great shame, no longer being a virgin. He doesn't do that. He casts her out where she now is in great shame and dishonor, even worse than before. Absalom, which is also David's son, is also the brother of of Tamar. And of course, Tamar's outraged by this. Uh, Absalom is outraged by this. We read in the middle of chapter 13 that that uh, that we see Tamar going and now living with, with Absalom. Absalom's going to take care of her. And the question is, what do you think David was going to do with this situation? And here is David's son Amnon, and he has done something horrible and awful, and he's done it against his own daughter Tamar. What should David do in a circumstance like this? What should be the response? What should be the discipline from a man after God's own heart after such an awful event like this takes place? And chapter 13, verse 21 tells us, when King David heard about all these things, he was furious. And that's all. There's no statement of, and so what he did was he called Amnon in there, pulled him by his ear and said, what do you think you're doing? You know, and you see a dad pulling in his son saying, what's going on here? What, what, what do you think you're doing with this? Where's the discipline? Where, where's the action? In fact, the Septuagint goes on and has a little bit fuller reading which says, the King David heard these things and became very angry. He would not punish his son Amnon because he loved him for he was his firstborn. What we see David doing is nothing. He doesn't even uphold the law. He doesn't even pull Amnon in and say, listen, you've done something awful. The least that you can do is go marry Tamar. Now, like the law of Moses demands, pay the penalty, the financial penny, go marry her, do at least that like the law requires. David does nothing. You read this and it's absolutely outrageous. In fact, it's so outrageous that we see Absalom outraged at his own father for doing nothing. It is a horrible scene that is presented to us, and we see David is not uh, just uncaring. He's clearly upset about what Amnon has done, but he does nothing about it. Reminds me of Eli, where Sunday night studies we were going through the books of the Old Testament. Remember Eli, very upset at his sons because of the sacrifices that they were doing. They were being dishonorable with, with the tabernacle sacrifices and what was to be done there. And they were taking those things, taking those sacred things and making them common, unholy, taking them for themselves. And Eli was upset, but didn't do anything about it. And here's David doing the exact same thing, not doing anything about it. And so because David does nothing, because there is no justice that David presents, remember, as king over Israel, he's supposed to be the enforcer of the law. Absalom does do something. Absalom, two years later, waits for a moment when Amnon has gotten himself drunk, and he kills Amnon. Absalom kills his half-brother, and then he flees from Jerusalem for a number of years. One of the first things that I think is important as we see this begin to transpire, what's going on with David's life, is that we see David forgetting one of the key principles that his son Solomon is going to state, which is obviously was given way on back even in the law of the book of Exodus, 
And we see well learned here. Train up the child in the way he should go. Even when he was old, he will not depart from it. One of the things that is interesting about training our children is that that discipline in training is not just simply telling them to do something. I, I can envision David with Amnon going, Amnon, you shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. Shame, shame. Now, now. You know. But there was no enforcement of the rules. There was no enforcement of the law. He doesn't say, and because you've done this, here's what has to be done. Here are the steps that you have to take. Here's what the law requires of you. Yes, I know I'm your father, but look, I'm also king over Israel. Justice has to be served. And here's what is required of you. Here's what you have to do. But David doesn't do that. And I want us to consider that training the child in the way he should go is about enforcing the rules. And so often, it is so easy to want to do nothing. I had a great example of this just, just the other day, just yesterday. You tell some of well, the parents, tell the child, now, I don't want you to run in the house. Okay, okay, I'm not going to run. If you run in the house, I, and we were at a party, a uh, kid's party, I'm going to make you sit here on the couch, and you're not going to be able to play with your friends. All right. There was an agreement. There was an accord and understanding. Child goes. About three minutes. He's flying around the house again. He calls him. Come here. And I'm sitting there thinking, all right, we're going to see it happen. Here comes justice. And all he says is, don't run. And there he goes and plays again. And I went, uh-uh. <laughs> you didn't enforce the rules. And when you don't enforce the rules, you're not training. All that you're training the child to learn is your word means nothing. <laughs> and that's why the child three minutes later saw no problem going back and zipping around the house some more, knowing full well, daddy's not going to do anything. As we read the story, we're going to see David has become that kind of person, it seems. The inability to follow through on the rules. And so often what happens is parents, I know, we're tired. We don't want to enforce the rules. We're wore out. I don't want to get up off the couch and have to do something about it. I don't want to have to enforce it. I would rather him go be in the other room and leave me alone just to give me five minutes of peace. But understand what you're doing. You're teaching your child that disobedience is okay. You're teaching your child that your word means nothing. And even though you tell them to do something, they can ignore you without consequence. And what that does in the scene that we have here with David is it brings great outrage to the whole family. Here you have Absalom. He's just livid that David is not following through, not with just handed down rules of don't run in the house, but the law of Moses decreed that something had to be done. And David was unwilling to get up and follow through on the rules. It's so funny that it's so easy to enforce the rules on everybody else's kids but not on our own. <laughs> it's very easy to slam the hammer down and say, oh, that's the way it should have been. And it's real easy when you don't have kids and you look around all the parents and go, oh, you know, and then you have your own and then you're just as weak as everybody else. And you realize, uh-oh. <laughs> Understand something. That's what is going on. And what we're going to see with David, and I think this is an important principle, is undisciplined children will come back to haunt you. And that's going to happen in our story that we're going to read about this morning is that the undisciplined child will come back to haunt you and cause you problems and cause you pain. 
And so the beginning of our story sets us up as we see this great trauma take place and David does nothing. I want us to consider there's another angle of what we often forget when you read a story like this. And that is, what about Tamar? And what about Absalom? Here is David in his concern for Amnon, and he has utterly forgotten what impact this makes to his other children. And I could not help but think of passages we know very well. Ephesians 6.4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Colossians 3.21. I submit to you that we provoke our children to wrath by not enforcing the rules. Look at it with me in this text and notice the outrage that that exists because David does nothing. Verse 19 of chapter 13, here's Tamar's response. She put ashes on her head, tore her long-sleeved garment. The verse before tells us that long-sleeved garment was a representation of being one of the king's virgins. And so she tears that that garment apart that she was wearing. And she put her her hand in her head and she went away weeping. Look at Absalom's response, verse 21. When King David heard about this, he was furious. Absalom didn't say anything to Amnon, either good or bad, because he hated Amnon since he disgraced his sister. That's how you provoke a child to wrath, is you don't bring justice. Justice was not served, and look at the response of Absalom and Tamar. They are outraged, angered, furious, and rightly so. Because David had not done what he was supposed to do in this situation. And so often we forget that we can do the exact same thing. How unfair that can be when we're dealing with our children. And here are the rules. Enforce the rules. And when the rules are broken, that angers the other kids. (laughs) That makes them upset. Because they're not following the rules. Why should I follow the rules then? And we're going to see Absalom follow through with that very logic. If we're not going to enforce it on one, then why enforce it with me? And I submit to you, it seems to me by my observations, that children want boundaries. They want rules. And they continue to act out until they find the boundaries, until they find the rules. We're going to watch a great instance of Absalom acting out. This doesn't apply to two-year-olds only. This applies to well-grown men. (laughs) We're going to see in just a minute. Well, they want to know what the rules are. We want to know where we stand with our parents. We want to know what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. What will bring about approval? What will bring about disapproval? I want that at 32 years old. I would like to know where I stand with my father and what are the boundaries. We all want that. And I think it's important to see that here is a situation where the rules were to be kept. Here's the boundaries that were to exist. And David does not follow through with those things. At the end of chapter 13, we see that Absalom goes into exile for three years. Now, how David deals with this is just fascinating. For three years, David is out now living somewhere else. He's outside of Jerusalem. He's had no contact with his father since this whole incident. He's allowed after those three years, Absalom is allowed to come back to Jerusalem, but still not allowed to talk to David. Two more years pass by where David and Absalom have no contact. So for more than five years, Absalom and David have not talked about any about this situation. No dealings about what has taken place. No communication whatsoever about what's going on. And so here is Absalom living, living here in Jerusalem. And what's interesting, chapter, 42, chapter 14 and verse 32, we have Absalom basically, what he does is he sets Joab's field on fire. Now remember, Joab is the captain 
of David's army. <laughs> and what, what, the, what Absalom is doing is, if my father's going to ignore me, I'm going to get his attention. <laughs> Here's a grown guy like Absalom. He puts Joab's field on fire. Joab comes running, what have you done? And Joab's response there about verse 31, 32 of chapter 14 is simply, uh, if I come back to Jerusalem and my father's going to ignore me, then what's the point of me being here? If he's going to punish me, then let him talk to me and punish me. Let's get it out. Let me have, a, a, have the ability to stand before him so that we can have this discussion. Either do something to me or don't. But stop just ignoring me for all these years. A very interesting uh, scene that takes place here with Absalom and David. And so finally, Absalom is given his chance to go before the king, David, which is presented to us at the end of chapter 14. Joab went, verse 33, Joab went to the king and told, told him so. David summoned Absalom, who came to the king and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. A very interesting record. And because it seems that all that time, Absalom just became embittered by this whole circumstance. Because what we're going to read about Absalom doing is he's turning against his father 100%. And it seems the reason why still stems back to the lack of justice, the lack of action of what David had done in regards to Amnon for the sake of Tamar. And so David doesn't do anything, doesn't do anything, lets Absalom be on the outside, ignores his son for five years. And the only thing that I, I thought about this is that there was a balance here. Is that children need discipline? But it seemed like Absalom is calling for approval here. He wants to know where he stands with David. I think that's important to see of why Absalom gets to such a hated state with David. We're going to see what he does against his father here in just a minute. But consider that one of the things that we are learning is that at any age, to a given degree, we're all seeking the general approval and love of our parents. And we need to bring discipline and bring justice when we're dealing with our children to teach them and train them to act and speak properly and understanding that undisciplined children will cause problems and pain in our life. But that doesn't mean that we can be just simply strict disciplinarians. Because children need to know why to follow the rules. And as I looked at this, I thought if the children uh, will not have any reason to obey if they don't receive positive feedback for what they're doing. In this scene, I would have expected David to say, you know, Absalom, what you did wasn't right. But I understand it was my failure that drove you to that. It was my inability to bring about justice. That this discussion needed to happen, and instead you just have this silence as David seems unwilling to act. Absalom feels it's required that something happen, some sort of justice be served. And we need to understand that children, if they are not going to receive positive feedback for doing well, inevitably what they do is the opposite. I know you've seen that. Kids get the attention of their parents one way or the other. <laughs> Even as adults. I read that with Absalom setting fire to Joab's fields. Holy cow, <laughs> what are you doing? What kind of act is that, Absalom? You're going to do something to get David's attention. If I have to burn down Jerusalem, I'm going to do something to get my father to let me have a chance to talk to him. Do something with me. 
And I, I think that's exactly what we're seeing between David and Absalom going on, is that they're going to seek attention one way or the other. And if children do not learn that they receive our approval and they receive goodness for doing well, then they're going to seek our attention through negative means. They're going to do things that they shouldn't do to try to get our attention. And since David, for five years, ignores Absalom, Absalom decides, well, let's see what bad thing I can do to get David to finally get the, give me the attention that I want. And so notice what happens now in chapter 15. It says there in chapter 15, verse 1, after this, you think, oh, everything's all reconciled. No, no, that's not at all what happened there in chapter 14. Chapter 15, Absalom got himself a chariot, horses, 50 men to run before him. He would get up early and stand beside the road leading to the city gate. When it, Whenever anyone had a grievance to bring before the king for settlement, Absalom called out to him and asked, What city are you from? And if he replied, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel, Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are good and right, but the king does not have anyone to listen to you. He added, If someone would appoint me judge in the land, uh, if only someone would appoint me judge in the land, then anyone who had a grievance or dispute could come to me, and I would make sure he received justice. And when a person approached to bow down to him, Absalom reached out his hand and took hold of him and kissed him. And Absalom did this to all the Israelites who came to the king for a settlement. And so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. This is a, a great little story because here's Absalom. And so he sits out in the gates of Jerusalem. He's sitting out front there. And any person who was going to come before the king to have their dispute settled... Absalom would kind of jump in the way and say, now, now exactly, what the, what's your problem? What, how can I help you out? And he'd hear the story and the problem would go, well, here's what I would do if I was a judge of the land. It's a real shame uh, that, that I'm not somebody important around here because here's the kind of justice that I would give you. Does he sound like a politician? We're warming up that kind of language. Now, if I were president, here's what I would have done in that kind of situation. That's exactly what Absalom's doing. Read the story. He's kissing the babies. He's shaking hands. He's doing everything that he can to become popular with the people of Israel. And it works. The end of verse 6 tells us he stole away the hearts of the people. But I suggest to you that this scene couldn't have come about if David was not acting properly as king. If everybody was happy about the justice that David was bringing, there would have been no need for Absalom to steal away the hearts of the people. You wouldn't have had Absalom go, oh, well, if I were judge, I would have done this. The people would have said, well, David does that all the time. David brings justice. It seems that David had been paralyzed by his sin with Bathsheba from that time on. We don't read about David doing very well. And it seems that Absalom seizes upon that. And he says, here's what we can do about this. You make me somebody important in Israel and I'm going to take care of it. We don't need old David. He's not bringing about justice. I can imagine Absalom telling the story of Amnon and Tamar. I can imagine them sitting there going, you won't believe what my dad did with, with, with my, my half-brother Amnon and my sister Tamar. I, I can't imagine he's going to bring you justice either. You just, just see all this going on. And it's unfortunate that what we see taking place is that David seems to be paralyzed from the sins that he's done. And this is what brings about what we started off the lesson, is that Absalom steals away the hearts of the people, and what he does is he has a revolt in Jerusalem driving David out. And so David and his family and those who are with him are walking out of Jerusalem weeping, barefooted, up to the Mount of Olives as they're upset, as Absalom, his own son, 
seizes the throne away from him and drives him out and attempts to have David killed. That's how bad the relationship had deteriorated between David and between Absalom. And I think that's an important lesson. And how many times I have seen this very problem still exist where parents feel like because of past sins they are unable to act properly today. How many times I've seen on TV, on on the radio, that people call in and go, you know, I, I did drugs when I was in high school and college, so how can I tell my kids not to do that? Call in. Yeah, I got plastered drunk when I was in college, so how can I tell my kids not to do that? I was sexually immoral and promiscuous when I was younger, so how can I condemn my children not to do that? Well, I think it's real easy. You tell them what you did was wrong, and it's not acceptable for them to do it. Be honest with them and tell them you made a mistake. Don't let what you did in the past paralyze your actions now. David should have sat down with the kids and said, you know what, what I did back there was wrong, but that's not going to change how I'm going to treat you today. Yes, I committed a horrible sin there with Bathsheba. Yes, I killed uh, Uriah the Hittite. Yes, I lied. But to allow that to now cloud the rest of David's life so that he would now be unable to deal fairly with Amnon, to deal fairly with Tamar, to deal fairly with Absalom, even with the people of Israel, that Absalom has the ability to steal the hearts away, David just sat back and said, I'm a sinner, what am I going to do? How can I judge these people? And I know you've heard this argument. I've heard it all the time. People make the same nonsense about Christianity. Oh, well, you're a sinner, so how can you tell me what's, what's right and wrong? Answer, that's real easy. Yes, I am a sinner, but that doesn't mean what you're doing is right. <laughs> you're right. I'm not living a good life either. I need to do better, but that doesn't change that you're doing something wrong. The same thing to our children. Yeah, you're right. I did make a mess of myself when I was 20 years old or 15 years old or 30 years old. So, I don't want you to make the same mistake. I'm just blown away how often our society is suggesting to us that if you have done something wrong, that makes you unable to be judged concerning that problem. Wrong. You are the perfect person to talk about that problem. You may only compound our sins when we do not learn from our mistakes and teach others about our mistakes. We are in the perfect opportunity to explain to people what they should and should not do because we've gone through it ourselves. David would have been the great example to sit down and say, friends, here's what's wrong with sexual morality. Here's what's wrong with lying and murder. Here's why you shouldn't do it. Look at my family. It's been destroyed. Look, the sword has not departed my house. He would have been the perfect example. Instead, he did the opposite. He cowered away and said, oh, I've made mistakes, and so I, 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 can't, I can't enforce any of the rules. Can't do anything. I, people are just going to make the same mistakes as me, so how can I say anything because I made the same mistake too? Don't do that. Absolutely we've made mistakes. And we're going to continue to make mistakes. We're going to continue to sin. But that doesn't mean that stops us from teaching our children what is right and what is wrong. And I honestly think... and. You think for yourself, can you, if your parent, if your mom or your dad had sat down with you and had been honest about the thing that they had done wrong and explained, here's all the things that I did wrong and that's why I don't want you to do this because look at what it did to me. Would you have not respected your parents for that? 
I know I would. I'd appreciate that. Sit down and say to me, yeah, I was a buffoon when I was in high school. Look at all the things that I did wrong. And that's why I don't want you to do this. I appreciate my father did that in a lot of instances where he sat down and explained, I made this mistake, and boy, did it cost me. And I didn't go through that mistake because I was at least a little bit smart enough to listen to him on that step. And I listened and said, okay, I'm not going to make that mistake. And we need to do the same thing. We need to understand that it's important to teach our children based upon the mistakes that we've made. Not act like we did everything perfectly, but use the things that we've done wrong to be able to teach them the way they should go. So, training your children in the way they should go, that means enforcing the rules. Not just telling them what they have to do, but enforcing the rules. And so often that's not the case. And I I see it with parents who, who just throw their hands in the air and they don't know what to do. If you want your child to do something, enforce the rules to make them do it. You want them to behave? Enforce the rules so they'll behave. Tell them, here's, what are, who's, here's what's expected of you. You have to keep to these rules. You want them to do these things? Then you have to enforce. And children will respond against that if we say, here's what I want you to do, and then we don't follow through. And I think that... We see the, the, the fruit of that. You all have warned me. Just wait till you have teenagers. I think you see the fruit of that when <laughs> you don't enforce the rules. They've learned anything you say means nothing. And now they've gotten too old and too big to force them to stop as they haven't learned to listen to our words. Children seek parental approval. Commend them for obedience or else they'll disobey to get our attention. Absalom is perfect in describing these two problems that, that existed in David's life. And so Absalom reacts poorly, and he commits sins himself because of David's own actions and own inability to act justly. And I hope that we will not let past mistakes and past sins paralyze us from teaching our children the way they ought to go. Just because you and I have made mistakes and just because you and I have committed sins does not give license to our children to go do the exact same thing. In fact, I think it puts a greater responsibility on ourselves that we can say, look, I did that. (laughs) I know you think everything was different when we were kids, but I did that. I went through that. Listen to the things that I have to tell you and understand why these mistakes cost you. We learn a lot from the life of David, and I hope you will spend some time on your own and, and thumb back through his life and consider Here's a man after God's own heart who did a lot of things right and he did a lot of things wrong. And yet ultimately he always turned his heart back to God. Even though he made a lot of tremendously great mistakes and even though he steeped himself in great sins as we've read about a number of times in this series, he always came back to God. He always put his trust in God. And I think ultimately that was what set him apart that God could give him Uh, Such a precious description of a man after God's own heart, always trying to do what's right, even though he didn't always live up to that. We encourage you this morning to try to do your very best to serve God with all of your heart, to turn away from your sins, to turn away from a lifestyle of selfishness, and realize that the laws that God has given and the commands that he's given 
not only give us eternal life and not only give us a home in heaven, but we're given so that you and I will have a better life now. If we do the things that God has asked us to do, things will go well with us. Things will go better. These rules were not just given by God to be cruel and unjust, but to give us the manual of how we ought to live our lives today. And I hope you will look at the way David lived as very early on. Remember our first story way on back. Chosen and anointed to be king over Israel. Going through the life of great trust in God to destroy and defeat Goliath. No one else had the courage to stand before him, but David did. But then to sink to all-time lows of being run out of Jerusalem, run out of his own land, joining up with the Philistines, turning away from that, coming back to God. We see in the life of David the very ups and downs and ebbs and flows of what we go through in life. You do well, you have conquest, you're on top of the world serving God, and you fall down and you're not doing what's right. You come back and you do well again. We're not going to go through it, but you know what the very last scene we're given with David is he's going to fall again. He's going to number the people of Israel, and he shouldn't. He only numbered the people before going to war. He did it as a matter of pride. He numbers the people, great sin again. Great plague upon the people takes place because of that. David up and David down. It reflects our lives. When you're doing well or when you're doing badly, Give your life to God. Serve Him with all of your heart. If you have not been immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, we beg you to do that this very morning, to have your sins taken away while we stand and while we sing.